The team behind Montreal's Joe Beef and Liverpool House restaurants have a new cookbook. It's called Joe Beef, Surviving the Apocalypse, Another Cookbook of Sorts. They provide survivalist recipes for both outdoorsmen and bunker dwellers, as well as a dollop of French cuisine and a 16-page centerfold full of photos of preserved edibles to stock in the cellar. Uh, welcome, David McMillan, Meredith Erickson, and Frederick Morin. Nice to see you all. Good morning. Good morning. Um, let's... let's start with you guys because I want to sort of let people know across the country <laughs> all about Joe Beef. And I was telling you before the microphones were turned on, I tried to get into Joe Beef for years on visits to Montreal. It's packed all the time. The overflow goes to the Liverpool house, which is now also packed all the time. It's where Justin Trudeau and, and uh, Barack Obama had dinner. All the restaurants are fantastic. We finally got in this past uh, July, and it honestly was one of the the best nights in Montreal I have ever spent. The food, the service, the ambiance, everything. Unbelievable place. Apologies for the uh, wait, (laughs) and we're thrilled that you got to come. It's a fantastic place. And if you can, for years, we would just go and we'd sort of look in the window. And see, are there any empty tables? No, there's never an empty table. Anyway, that's Joe B. from Montreal. I want to talk, though, uh, to you about uh, Vermont television and how that influenced you guys as young men in Montreal. Because uh, cooking shows, you watched the, back in the day before the Food Network, it would have been the French chefs. Yeah, Fred and I came from uh, similar backgrounds. Fred... Grew up in a Francophone family in uh, an area of the West Island. I grew up in an Anglophone family in an area of the West Island. But I think our upbringings are suburban and similar. Um, Our parents, you know, didn't have enough money for cable television. And we both (laughs) got the free Vermont PBS uh, channel. So by default, uh, you know, we were both weaned on this old house. The Victory Garden, yep. Jacques Pépin, Julia Child, and all of the superlative programming that PBS has to offer, and you know a little bit of a the taste of the Vermont country lifestyle. I uh, grew up when every other kid was uh, enamored with Eric Lindros or Gila Fleur at times, or I never had music stars, or I didn't idealize idolize a sports star. Mine was uh, Norm Abrams. Oh, yeah? From yeah. The, the Yankee workshop yeah, and yeah. this old house. It yeah. was Jacques Pepin. I was, now we're fortunate enough that we can say hi to these guys. To, I met Jacques Pepin, you know, it's fantastic, but I still I am enamored with just the memory of sitting down, watching PBS all afternoon before, because I faked stomach cramp to stay home. <laughs> Fred's, Fred's claim to fame and the thing he was proud, the most proud of the book, I feel, is to get the guys from this old house to write back credits on right. the book. <laughs> and there's loads of back credits here from uh, Jeremiah Tower, probably the first celebrity chef, the inventor of California cuisine, Anthony Bourdain, Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, there's, a, there's some interesting people there, and we'll talk about some of them a little bit later. Interesting to talk about this old house and Jacques Pepin, because I see you put the two of them together and you get Joe Beef. Somewhat. You know, th- yeah. This is the idea of, of creating... Because Joe Beef, to me, felt kind of handmade inside. You're perhaps the first person to really nail this, honestly. (laughs) 
You read through our game. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, listen, I, it, the the restaurant feels unique when you're in it. It feels like it 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 could only really exist there and was built for that particular space. You know, we built that restaurant uh, at times in in our career of 15 years ago with my dining room chairs from my personal <laughs> home, uh, I think, and the total sum of. Fifty, sixty thousand wow. dollars, yeah. which is nothing for a restaurant. No, I mean, we just asked yeah. for free art. We got a free yeah. fridge. There <laughs> happened to be a six burner stove and a deep fryer. Uh, we got an artist to make the tables for us for free for trade, which we probably paid over six times in uh, yeah. trade meals. You got a bison head for the bathroom. Yeah, the bison head in the bathroom is uh, startling. <laughs> <laughs> And even the garden in the back was yeah. like a, an accident because the guys came back to dig a, a patio slab so we can sit people outside and they just right. put a bunch of dirt there. <laughs> and David planted tomatoes the first year. So, right. and, and all of a sudden, there it is. The bison head has its own Instagram account. I know. At, at Joe Beef Bison Head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm speaking uh, with the authors of Joe Beef Surviving the Apocalypse, another cookbook of sorts. When did Joe Beef... When was it, was there like a night that you went, oh man, we're successful now? Wow. Um, Because you started with... We still don't think we're successful. (laughs) Really. We never cheered to that. We said that yesterday. We'll never like put our glass up and say like, yeah, we we did it. Yeah. No, No, we consistently touch wood. We feel that we're always 21 days away from bankruptcy, (laughs) that the the whole infrastructure of Joe Beef and all its working parts are very fragile. Uh, Any awards we've ever won, we've put in a box in the basement (laughs) and we just try to keep the spirit of the same restaurant that we opened 15 years ago. you, it's not humble to say you're humble, but we're humble. Yeah, I, you yeah, know, yeah. yeah. We we realize that we're we're lucky, and that the restaurant is beloved uh, by many people. Uh, it's it's a huge, it's an honor for us. Uh, you know, to just try to speak to everybody, and touch as many tables as we can, and just be kind and and generous to everybody that will be generous with us, because it is. And a, a restaurant that costs a little bit of money to eat at. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're aware of that. Guillermo del Toro was in here uh, a while ago and told me that every movie that he makes, he always thinks it's going to be the last one. Mm-hmm. It's the same kind of idea. You know, yeah. you never know uh, what's coming next. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps the car you do, I could agree with him. <laughs> <laughs> now, Meredith, you worked at Joe Beef. I You're did. one of the co-authors of the book, but you yeah. worked there for four years uh, as a waiter. Tell me what that was like, because it, it seems exciting and frenetic and and interesting. Yeah, I mean it was all of those things. Um it was smaller then than it is now and uh it it came up it really that restaurant really happened, you know, quite organically. And I think one thing you don't see very often is, you know, Vanya who also opened the restaurant is still there, you know, almost 15 years later. A lot of the core people, right. you know, are still there. And similar to the, your experience there, I can completely understand why why people stick around because, you know, working at Joe Beef, if it's, you know, whether it is a a Mick Jagger night or the Norm Abrams of the world, (laughs) you know, that's pretty great entertainment. That's a pretty great night. 
And yes. Were you there when Mick Jagger was there? I was not there. You that were was not post there. my time. Yes. Yeah, I, I worked there from 2005 to 2009, right. almost 10. And then the first cookbook came out that you helped co author, and yep. then you, you have embarked on an international writing career. Since then. Yeah. So yeah. the first book came out in 2011, and, uh, you know, we were really pleased with it, and I was really proud of it. And uh, since that, uh, a lot of kind of different people from Portland, Oregon right. to London, to Austin have come to me to to help them with their books. And uh, next year I have my first solo project all about the Alps, Alpine cooking. Wow. So I've been yeah. in the Alps for the last six years working on that. Wow. Eating and writing and... Eating and writing and hiking and skiing and trying to figure it out because a, a book about, uh, about these four Alpine countries didn't exist. Right. Uh, David, tell me how a compliment from Pierre Elliott Trudeau made you realize that cooking was the path for you? Uh, it was kind of a validation. Uh, I worked in a small French restaurant in St. Anne de Bellevue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I had no true plan of my future. I was struggling in school. I just couldn't see the path clearly. I was working one night in a, in a restaurant, and uh, he came into the kitchen. I guess he was friends with the chef, and they had a little bit of a goof on me somewhat. <laughs> and uh, they, they Pierre Elliott Trudeau said, Mr. McMillan, your food, your, the, the soup and the salad that I had tonight were, were done with great craft. They were very delicious. You <laughs> might have a career in this. I would consider, and I was like, oh, well, you know, that's cool. Yeah. I've never met anyone of any celebrity right. whatsoever and, and in my life. Is, uh, yeah, and it kind of led me down the road to sticking to that restaurant and then listening to the chef of that restaurant that I was working for and moving on to the next restaurant. And I was kind of indro- indoctrinated by these French chefs that were saying, you know, you're pretty good at this. Maybe you should go to France. Maybe you should go to cooking school. Maybe you should read these books. And... uh Years and years later, you know, we've been cooking for Justin for about 20 years, Fred and I, and we have a good relationship with Justin, and our relationship with Justin was leveraged into getting Obama into Liverpool House. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that night. Were you there when it was happening? (laughs) (laughs) No, I wasn't. So, David, you can uh, go on to that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we didn't really know. You know, I had an inkling that someone special was coming, because when Justin comes, we, you know, we'll know in the morning, kind of, and, you know, this is, this light security detail for Is there the, a table that he always sits at? Yeah, yeah. Even before he was prime minister, Justin never eats at Liver- Joe Beef. He likes Liverpool right. House. There's a table that he likes called Table 17. And, right. And uh, that's his table. And I guess, you know, when uh, when he came to town, he wanted to bring Obama to the table that he likes. Yeah, and, yeah. And that, that's what we made it happen that way. Uh, we knew there was an inkling because they were putting cement barricades on both ends of the street, and there seemed to be secret service uh, behind the restaurant, behind the up above the restaurant across the street. Guys were setting up uh, almost sniper yep. stations uh, everywhere, uh, you know, and they showed up. Uh, there was just a lot of security. The security yeah. detail must have been over forty men and mm-hmm. women. That's more uh, military than in uh, October 1970. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was fun. Uh, he, he was uh, personable. He spoke to everybody. Uh, my, he spoke to my daughter. He spent a, lot, a great amount of time with my daughter, which was uh, very cool for her, yeah. you know. And uh, it was a great night. And what did he eat? Oh, they ate simply. They ate some salad, some asparagus, I believe, morel mushrooms, uh, halibut, uh, carrot sauce, uh, hinterland, uh, hinterland, uh, hinterland sparkling wine. Right. Yeah. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with uh, Fred Morin, David McMillan, and Meredith 
uh, Erickson. They are the authors of Joe Beef, Surviving the Apocalypse, another cookbook of sorts. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the simple question, the first question, why the apocalypse? Why write a cookbook for the apocalypse and what form will that apocalypse take? Stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. My guests in studio are the authors of the Joe Beef a uh, new cookbook called Surviving the Apocalypse, another cookbook of sorts. Um, tell me then, why the apocalypse? <laughs> well, look outside. Yeah. If we were in Montreal, you look outside, there's holes the size of um, hot tubs in the streets. Yeah. Um, Orange cones. There's people fighting. The government's levels are fighting in, in between the provinces. Can't get even like wine from one province mm -hmm. into the other. And that was before the elections in the state. And now all of a sudden there's a, a potential nuclear, thermonuclear war because somebody called Little Rocket Man. You know, like, and, and that happened. Yeah, you know, it, it seems like the world has become a much more complicated place. And, and we, recently. and at the same time too, like in Montreal, they were like um, pouring out the content of 26 sewers into the, the St. Lawrence River. We were like, oh, well, let's, just buy water. Let's buy yeah. cases, all the cases of water we can find. Yeah, and that's a that's a feeling that kept reoccurring. You know, like even today, this morning, our hotel had no water, so we are very resourceful. So we took our dehydrated water, mixed it with water, and washed <laughs> ourselves. <laughs> no, it's something you have to have. You know, I I, I think that nothing worse than showing unprepared. Mm -hmm. And being prepared not only means having like a suture kit in your truck or a ham radio at home, it also means being prepared, showing to a dinner with a nice bottle of wine or a nice present, nice conversation, nice showing prepared yeah. everywhere, you know, uh, showing to work prepared for your day, showing to, to going skiing, being prepared, pack a nice lunch. Uh, uh, and this, this whole notion of preparedness it was like intrinsic in our, to our career, you know, it, it, it's fundamental. You show up to work, you prepare, you, and making stuff by hand too is, is essential. And we have kids, and David has three kids, I have three kids, and you feel like, uh, what's a movie taken? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. You feel yeah, like getting all, uh, all like that. And well, I mean, I think that, that when you have kids too, you're forced to think about the future. Absolutely. In a way that maybe you didn't before when you were young guys running a restaurant. Yeah, we used to be two guys running a restaurant, living in two apartments, on a you know two two in a you know two ugly guys that would never <laughs> think that any girls would want to be with us. And then we had two wives, and then we had three kids apiece. And there's a certain sense of responsibility, a stress to that. And add 100 employees that we don't consider employees that we consider friends and family. So Fred and I sitting at the top of the proverbial Joe Beef Pyramid have a sense of responsibility to take care of all these wards and there's nothing better to appease our anxiety than to be prepared for eventualities you know it just it, it, it relieves us to be organized it relieves us to make sure that we'll at least try to take care of everybody and Meredith, what kind of research do you do for a book like this? Yeah, I mean, I think we should stipulate too, there, there's kind of a the external apocalypse mm -hmm. what the guys have just been speaking about. But there was probably more intrinsically and maybe perhaps more importantly, an internal apocalypse happening within kind of each of us. Because, you know, I, I wish that we had our... our um, 
our glass, uh, our glass ball, our looking glass, yeah, yeah. Our crystal ball, yeah, yeah our yeah, crystal yeah. ball. Um, but but we we didn't, you know. So and this was three years three years ago, and we couldn't predict the zeitgeist. So I think that at that time we each felt that. Um, we, we wanted to kind of hunker down and just create things and just cook and just work on our homes and kind of go more insular. Uh, for me personally, I just wasn't relating to the Kim Kardashian Instagram worthy. Like, I don't care yeah. about that, you know, at all. Yeah. And uh, I don't have children, but if I did have daughters, I definitely wouldn't want them to care about that at all. So... It was just kind of wanting to write, do our write our own story, and uh, that's how 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 we did it. Um, it was all there. It was all in our minds and our hearts and the spirit of the city. And the the book has a variety of of recipes in it. Some are very complicated. Others are not. Uh, there is a recipe for for uh, throat lozenges in there. There's all sorts of things. Tell me just a little bit about the, the specifics of of figuring out what will what makes the cut and what doesn't. Okay, so we'll start with you, yeah, Mary. sure. Um, for each book we've done, we basically uh, are quite analog. So we take a huge uh, craft roll of paper and we think about everything that's happened in the restaurant since the previous book, since 2011, all of the old menus. And then we think about things that we're just currently really excited about. And I think that with, with Joe Beef, um, there's a lot of tactile, you know, it, it's never just recipe, picture, head note, recipe, picture, head note. It's multidimensional and the recipes are multidimensional. So you have the lozenges, you have the soap, yeah. you have the centerfold of those bunker recipes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and the book, I mean, the book is beautiful, but I love the centerfold of the bunker, the cellar yeah. recipes, uh, because I just think it's extraordinarily beautiful and uh, something that, that sets the book apart. You know, it's something that is unique and sets the book apart. Yeah. I mean, with every project I do, especially with this project, you I want you to be able to open the Joe Beef book and it kind of just completely explode. Mm-hmm. Everything about to Joe Beef to burst out. <laughs> yeah, Whether or not you've ever been there or you have and you want to keep it as a souvenir. Now, we talked about Joe Beef a, a little bit earlier, but you say you wanted to, you want Joe Beef to explode. What does, what does that mean to each of you? Oh, Joe Beef explode. You know, this book, we're competing right now with Google search. Yeah. We're, you know, we're, we're competing with iTunes. We're competing for your attention. It's very, it's, you know, just a book of uh, Fred and I's pretty picture on the cover holding a bunch of asparagus and artichokes. Uh, it won't cut it. Uh, as you've noticed at the restaurant, we are quite insecure and you know, aim to please, overfeed, over care, over, you know, Well, you say overdo I promote it. excessive drinking, I promote dining, I promote excessive eating. Yeah, and I want, like, this book has to have too much information. <laughs> uh, the playlists are too long. Uh, you know, the, the menu is too big. The portions are too big. Uh we want you to drink too much. And when you had too much drinks, we're there with more, uh, you know, more Calvados for you to finish your <laughs> night. That's our explosion somewhat, you know, as far as getting bigger or expanding, that's not the game. But, yeah, you know. yeah. And I mean, when we first, when we started, it was supposed to be 120 or less recipes right. in the first book, um, but it ended up almost 155 recipes. So 
yeah, we kind of, we, we thought we would do less cooking, more narrative, and it ended up being a lot more cooking. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation about Joe Beef, Surviving the Apocalypse, another cookbook of sorts. Stay with us. My guest in studio, Fred Morin, David McMillan, and Meredith Erickson. They're the authors of Joe Beef, Surviving the Apocalypse, uh, another cookbook of sorts. It is a beautiful book, um, but you guys don't really think about the book as a cookbook, so much. No, Even of course. Though, it, that's why it says another cookbook of sorts, but it's not exactly just a cookbook. I see it as maybe maybe two books, and like just I, I would like to just complete what we started on mm-hmm. earlier as like um, who we competing against. Right. What David was saying, we're competing against the internet. We're competing against like an influx of like um, stimulus. But we're also competing with a whole generation of like super talented chef and cookbook authors. Right. Um, the cooks now, the young cooks, this generation is very, very talented and, and graphically, visually very interesting and very aware of what's going on. And like um, the narrative is actually really interesting as well. So we have to be aware of what's out, of, of, of what's out there. Mm-hmm. And... I think, like David said, it's like this mortal fear and this this kind of um, maybe a little bit of a low self-esteem that motivates the too-muchness of it. Right. <laughs> well, I, I, I love it. I love the excessive nature of the restaurant and the book. Um, is Joe Beef a creative work? Or is it something else? It's not just a restaurant. It's our, a philosophy of sorts. Our accountant thinks it's a creative work. <laughs> he thinks it should, we should apply for Canada Council Grants for the Arts uh, as a public art installation or a public service for the people of Montreal because on paper, financially, it barely makes sense. Right. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, just some of the inner workings of restaurants. We've been hearing a lot about uh, harassment in restaurants and, and that sort of thing uh, over the last number of years. I think of uh, the Spotted Pig in New York and that sort of thing. Um, tell me what steps, because a restaurant that opened 15 years ago would be different in terms of its attitude in some ways. And I worked in bars for a long time and restaurants for a long time than it would be if it was opening today, I, I think. I came up in the restaurants uh, I've been working in restaurants since I'm uh, 17, 18 years old. My career has been complete and total carnage. Yeah. I've been physically abused, verbally abused, mentally abused, antagonized. I've been beaten up outside restaurants by the team. Uh, I've worked for uh, racist people. I've worked for sexist people. I've worked for anti-Semitic people. I've worked in horrible places, Okay. Uh, but my eyes were always on the ball. Fred's eyes were always on the ball. We, through all of that, through the low pay, through the excessively long hours, the, my love for cooking, my love of French cooking has never, has never died. I still love what I do. I'm still obsessed with food and wine. Uh, and we're from very, very, very difficult uh, restaurant backgrounds. Yeah. We came up in what you're talking about. We came up in the, the you know, the... A terrible age of restaurants. Yep. There's a great enlightening now due to a lot of the younger people that work in our restaurants. This mil- the millennials that actually do the heavy lifting inside of our restaurants are, are very intelligent, very open-minded, very, very caring. They don't see race, gender, religion. Uh, 
are very kind to each other and very intelligent and not easily marketed to. We have to bend and flex for them, with them, uh, and, and remain uh, and remain role models. Fred and I, uh, through all of this long, you know, terrible career, <laughs> with the successes that we've had, have never been happy. You know, I've got sober like uh, almost a year ago. Fred's been sober a few months as well. Uh, when we started seeking therapy and start seeking to become better people and learning the language of therapy and sobriety, we've brought that back uh, into our everyday lives, into all the conversations that we have within our restaurant. And as the two people at the top of the proverbial Joe Beef Pyramid are better human beings in therapy and sober, there has been a cleansing effect throughout the whole company. And Fred, what what is that cleansing effect? I mean, how, how has being sober... Just the communication. Yeah. Um, I think that when, when the expectations that all the chefs in the culinary world live up to, the stars, the media, and everything, the fact that so many people pay attention to that, and the fact that consistently the bar is risen, you know, you have to do your own salami, and then not only you right. do your own salami, you open a pig farm. Not only you open a pig farm, you open a dairy farm. Yep. Now you make a cheese program in your restaurant. And all those things, in the end, they, they benefit um, your knowledge, mm -hmm. they benefit the customers, and then they benefit the media. You know, the media loves to write about a restaurant with a farm. Yeah. But then if you look fundamentally, the involvement... What, how the staff are involved in that, it just increases the workload tremendously. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I don't know if it's possible, but I think that the working condition, the peace of mind, the sanity of people could be restored by a move towards simplicity and simplicities of menus and uh, simplicities of wine list. Uh, we have a lot of skilled people that can change a menu every week, but have... No, no, not choice between like six fish mm -hmm. or shellfish, right. because in the end you eat only two things yeah. on the menu. And and what kind of creature needs to have um, the option between sweet bread cooked one way, a scallops <laughs> the other way, right, right. or this special glass, the Barolo from this year? It's 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 all in the end a a, lug, a rat race towards luxury. Let's mm -hmm. create this 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 incredible tension and if you look at what the the reward of stars is it doesn't uh, it doesn't physically feels better right it's not as as good as spending a morning with your kids it's not better than to go for a walk at the in the country it's not better than you know just enjoying a, a good movie like yeah. you know we have to just bring it back to like simpler things yeah well uh, I loved the experience with Joe beef uh, eating at Show Beef for one reason, or for uh, any number of reasons, but for one reason, it was easy. Our waiter sat at our table. She came over and sat down with us and said, okay, what kind of things do you like? What do you need? I don't think we looked at the menu. I'm sure we had them. I don't think we looked at them. And she said, you know what you should do? And then you should try this. And then you should do this. And everything was fantastic. And everything was right. It was that, a simple, easy, do. fun way to do it. They lay the menu inside out. Mm -hmm. You know, we do have the menu up on the chalkboard in both yep. rooms, and it is available to look at. Uh, but the staff, uh, the boys and girls that work in the dining room, are very excited about the menu, and they, they sit down and they study the menu every day, and we, they have to stay on top of it. The menu changes daily. Yep. 
and there's wines in the wine cellar that are new arrivals or mm-hmm. older things from the basement that we've released. And they're in, like, they want themselves personally, selfishly yeah, yeah. to drink those bottles of wine because <laughs> they know that's right. what, what wines are singing and what right. wines are not. Right. They also know what dishes on the menu are lights out mm-hmm. and what aren't. And they just really, they say, listen, listen to me, have the rabbit, yeah. drink the white ganva. It's going to be lights out. You're yeah. not going to get better. And if you follow their advice, you, you know, you'll be in good hands. And but, often, more often than not, they'll steer you away from too much food. Yeah. No, listen, uh, we left, uh, probably drank too much wine, but you know, that was our choice, not, not theirs. And, uh, but the food was, was, it was exactly what we wanted exactly what we wanted in the amount that we wanted. And Meredith, when you worked there, was there kind of a, it, it, it's, it's got to be a bit of a pressure cooker because the menu's changing every day and, and there are high expectations. I mean, I didn't really feel that at all. No? <laughs> but I mean, I've said this before. I think that uh, when I when I see, because I mean, I go there all the time, right? Mm-hmm. So when I sit down and eat and I kind of see the level, they're so much better than I was <laughs> when I was there. Um, it was it was an incredible experience. Yeah. You know, I loved it. Meredith wasn't a great waitress. No. <laughs> awful, awful. <laughs> was it more personality than waiting skills yes. that kept you yes. the job? We get yeah. Meredith around for this this smile. This smile. <laughs> <laughs> when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation. Uh, I want to talk about Anthony Bourdain, who wrote a blurb uh, for the book. The book is called "Surviving the Apocalypse: Another Cookbook of Sorts," and it comes from the the good folks at Joe Beef in Montreal. Uh, and I want to talk about what it's like to be a chef. How much time do you spend in the restaurant every day? Uh, are there some days, unlike 15 years ago when you were starting the thing, that maybe you don't go in at all? Uh, we'll find out when we come back. Stay with us. We are in conversation with the authors of Joe Beef, Surviving the Apocalypse, another cookbook of sorts. Uh, it's a doorstopper. It's a big book. and it uh, Yeah, it, it's a big book that is uh, unlike a lot of other cookbooks out there in that it comes with a philosophy and not just a philosophy about cooking with love and things like that. There's a lot of uh, generalities that get thrown around when you're, when you're talking with people who have written cookbooks. This one actually has a real philosophy behind it, which we discussed a little bit earlier uh, about how the world is changing and you have to be ready for that world to change. So hence, you know, recipes to make your own soap and throat lozenges and other delicious things. Um, Brunch, something I hate. I understand we have that uh, in common. Hate brunch. Yeah. Brunch is the worst. The the pits. (laughs) And, and, uh, And food trucks. Yeah. Food trucks. You don't like food trucks? Where do you go to the well, bathroom? I, oh, yeah, right. Okay, well, see, I, uh, food trucks for me uh, serve a purpose uh, late at night. Or in L.A. where they yeah. park by the, the, the factories, the fields. Yeah, and, and they have the, the it's like some of the best tacos I've ever had have been from a food truck in Los Angeles. So Yeah, and I mean, they're often a point from A to B for yeah. someone who can't afford to, to open something. And yeah. I think that there's a lot of great people who've yeah. started out. But that, that brings us back to brunch. So <laughs> why do you hate brunch so much? Uh, I don't know. That's, that, that, that period when brunch is served is sacred time. That, that's like, you know, chef has to work Saturday night, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And when you have to also do brunch and work Saturday night, it's just, it's just like, it's just having a cut and getting salt thrown in it. Uh, <laughs> it it's just not, it's not cool. And just the word is made up. 
breakfast contraction of right. two words. It's yeah. like Benifer. <laughs> who, who likes that? Nobody likes that. Uh, so these recipes in the book, uh, are they geared for the home chef or are there there's various levels? Some are, say, some right? aren't. Yeah. Uh, you know, we made the turnip soup this morning. Uh, <laughs> that's like possibly one of the easiest recipes ever written. Yeah, and, and, and it's the results of this 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 turnip and butter soup. It, it, it's delicious. Mm-hmm. It's like absolutely almost like fancy restaurant worthy, you right, know. Right. It's a great soup. So and, and other things are yeah, a lot more complicated. Yeah, Oddly yeah. the most complicated recipes are in the cooking at home chapter. Right. right. Because every book that was published, the second or third book was the chef in a little polo shirt with his kids, <laughs> and then the food was super simple. Right. Like a little spaghetti sauce with salad, arugula, and like yeah. the anything was thorn with their hand. And we said, like, no, we're going to do, like, those recipes are going to be, like, the pinnacle of complexity. Well, it, it's interesting because when I think back to those shows, and this kind of takes us full circle to uh, from the beginning of the interview, but the shows that, that you would have watched, Jacques Pepin and Julie Child and stuff, they didn't dumb it down for people. No. You know? No, not at no. all. They showed complicated cooking methods and taught people, you know, how to, what a saucier was and that kind of thing. If you're going to tackle something complicated, home is the best place to do it. Absolutely. It's, it's impossible for us to tackle very complicated dishes at the restaurants in the allocated space, the allocated amount of time, and then the very complicated dynamics to, you know, receiving... 70 people at 7 o'clock and, and feeding them and getting them out by 9.30. Without monopolizing everybody's right. time. And look, I tried a lot of recipes in my house. And when winter, the spring, when spring came, you'd see like sheet trays and burnt pans <laughs> under the snow because I would get mad and toss those sheet trays there. That was first book. That was the first one. Yeah, things I have also, changed since I, I also think like with this book, initially I heard some people, I think that it's quite esoteric mm-hmm. and... There's a difference between esoteric and difficult. Right. And, you know, with this book, all of the recipes are completely our, our own, the Joe Beef's own recipes. Yeah. Whereas I think so many people are used to books now being recipes that they know and they've seen before. So you're right. simply, it's like, you know, with women with makeup. You just keep buying the same stuff right. over and over again. But with this book, everything is completely I know new. what a chicken pot pie is. I'll make that. Yeah, yeah that kind of thing. exactly. Arugula salad recipes. Yeah. Yeah, books you, that's like, we don't need to see ever <laughs> another one. And it comes back to the restaurant philosophy right. because I don't think we could feel comfortable selling a book that retails for $45 yeah. without feeling that not only you're cooking from it many times, but it's sitting beside at your best bedside table. Right, right. And it's great to think of people as equal, mm-hmm. not, not, not like as lesser, and yep. address people in the tone of equal, be it radio or be it like through the book or their recipes or PBS. It's the right thing to do. Well, that brings me to Anthony Bourdain, who is a friend of yours. And the thing that I loved about Bourdain and I loved about his shows is that it treated everyone as equals. Those shows would take us to exotic places, would take us to places that many of us will never visit, the Congo or wherever it might happen to be. And at the end of all of those shows, what he had done was build a bridge rather than build a wall. He, he would show that we're all essentially the same. We want a warm place to pee. We want food for our kids. We just want the stuff that everybody wants you know, around we, the world. We just went to his memorial, and what you just said is perfectly said. 
Uh, I think everybody at his memorial, the epitaph was that. Yeah. That Tony showed the general public, his audience, that whether you were from Syria, Lebanon, Tripoli, that whatever you were a Muslim or Iran or whatever, that we all love our children. We all have families. We all love to commune around our dinner table. And once we do that, there is no religion, race, or politics, that ultimately anyone can share a meal together, friendly, funny conversation, and be caring with one another. And, you know, that that's his, that's his legacy. He yeah. was uh, a, a true journalist in that sense who fooled journalism, you know. That's right, yeah, yeah. What was he like? I mean, what, what were your, when you first met him, what were your Well, he has the same voice as you do. Which <laughs> I, I, you said a few words that just, yeah. like, it came to get me. It's an odd little thing but he was a great guy it was it was amazing and of course you know those shows um there's a, an hour of eating and drinking and then you're in the car for like 10 hours going to Bukins yeah um not talking so i could see how the road could have been heavy for him yeah you know yeah in a keith richards a bit kind of way minus like all the, i'm not talking about yeah. that but i'm just about the the high of being in the best most luxurious or desolate places having the dinners with like the most remote communities or like West Virginia miners and and then being in a car for like six hours and um, last trip we did to Newfoundland he just the guy poor guy was having a nap in the airport people just snapping pictures of him sleeping you know I guess that changed um Maybe the conversations in public were less. I think the I, dynamic I, with him, though, to finish what Fred's saying, or the question that you asked, the dynamic with him was neat, right? He was, there's a way that cooks in kitchens act with one another. Yeah. There's a way that my team at Joe Beef and my team at Liverpool House or the teams of any restaurant in the city, there's a certain colleague between, there's a certain camaraderie between colleagues. Uh, Tony was just one of, one of us, an older line cook, yeah, yeah. who had a little bit of success, but he was always a line cook. He he said one time he didn't never made more than five hundred bucks a week until he was forty five or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> it's, that's it's crazy. And even then, at the end, he put back a lot of money, I think, into the production yeah, and everything. Yeah. And he's... he never took sponsorship. He never yeah. took. Uh, they they never took tourism money. Yeah. They never stayed at a hotel. They didn't pay the full bill on. Uh, he like like any chef who decides that he wants to run a quality restaurant and do quality cooking. Tony said, "I'll, I'll do this TV show, but it's going to be my way, uncompromising, uncompromised, way. and we're going to spend the money that it takes, and we're not taking freebies, and we're we're going to do this properly with too much staff, the best cameras money can buy, the best camera people we can have, you know." Well, that's why that show was so great, though. I mean, if you look at every episode. Every episode felt like part of a whole. It felt like it was one thing, but each show was completely different in tone and in feel, and yet somehow it never not- felt tired. It never yeah. felt like they got till to the yeah. end of the fun, spe- the fun, interesting places yeah. to visit. Um, I- I'll tell you, I'm having a hard time watching them now. I I just watched uh, the Lower East Side the episode, uh, and. And uh, it was rough. I found it hard to watch because um, I can't believe that he's gone. Uh, We're not watching it. No. Have you been watching? No, no, no. No. 
no, I, 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 I can't. I will, you know, at some point, but right now I'm, I'm not there. Um, let's talk about the cooks of tomorrow. We just got a minute left. Uh, if there's one sort of bit of advice you could offer to people who are uh, going to be cooks or want to open up restaurants, what would it be? Pay very, very low rent, <laughs> sign <laughs> a long lease. Uh, and I think just have fun, take care of yourself, yeah. uh, you know. Taking nice, care of yourself nice. is the key, right? Yeah. Taking care be of nice yourself. You'll you. have a long career if you take care of yourself. Don't do what Fred and Dave did, <laughs> uh, you know. But I think it's what everybody does. When you, or not everybody, but I know certainly there is a culture that goes to working in bars. You live at night. Oh, I did anyway. I, I lived at night. You drank a lot. You're out a lot. You know where to get a drink at 3 o'clock in the morning if, you know, should you need one. Uh, it's, a, it's a much different kind of lifestyle. There's also people who go to bed earlier now yeah. that wake up, go to the museum, right. go to their doctor's appointment in the morning and don't wake up at 11 yeah. or noon like we did. Yeah, that wasn't me. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you, man, I, 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 <laughs> I would, the odd time I would have to be up very early, I would go and I'd be wow, banks are open at nine o'clock in the morning? That's crazy. <laughs> Who's Who could possibly care about that? Uh, listen, that's our time. Uh, thanks so much uh, for Thank coming you in. kindly. Uh, Thank you. The book is called Joe Beef, Surviving the Apocalypse, another cookbook of sorts. Uh, if you are in Montreal, do yourself a favor and go to the Liverpool house, uh, go to Joe Beef, or there's a wine bar in it. Vin Papillon. Yeah. And it's a, it's a situation where you have to have a bite to eat and a glass of wine. Yeah. Right. And it's, but I, I've sat in it. We didn't have a drink, but I sat in it and it's beautiful. Uh, you guys know what you're doing. Uh, my guests, of course, have been uh, Frederick Morin, uh, David McMillan, and Meredith Erickson. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to Andre on the board, and we'll speak again next week. Thank you. Thank you.